and welcome to Crop It Like It's Hot, brought to you by Arable Farming Magazine and The Crop Tech Show and presented by me, Alice Dyer. This is the last episode in our three-part series looking at managing crop inputs this season and beyond. We've looked at crop nutrition, disease management, and now we're finishing with pest control. I've got three great speakers with me today, entomologist Alan Dewa, Cambridgeshire farmer Martin Lyons, and Harper Adams University PhD student Claire Horror. Before we get started, don't forget you can claim one CPD point for tuning into this podcast by emailing your basis account number and the name of the podcast to cpd at basis-reg.co.uk. Turning to insecticides, these are the pesticide type probably under the most scrutiny at the moment and a lot of farmers are either trying to reduce their use or totally eliminate them. So today we're going to hear the experiences of Martin Lines, who's done just that, as well as more information on biopesticides which could help to replace some of that lost chemistry. But my first guest, Alan Dewar of Dewar Crop Protection, is going to talk us through the current situation with pesticides and what kind of pest pressure we can expect this season. From Limagrain UK's market-leading oilseed rape breeding programme, Aurelia is the UK's number one oilseed rape variety. Offering growers proven performance across all regions, it has exceptional autumn and spring vigour and outstanding disease resistance. Aurelia is a fully loaded hybrid combining turnip yellows virus, pod shatter and RLM7 FOMA resistance. Learn more and register for Limagrain's Oilseed Rape Establishment Expert Panel on Friday 6th of May by visiting lgseeds.co.uk forward slash OSR. So Alan, I was wondering if we could just start with a bit of an overview from you on um, kind of the political situation with insecticides. Um, We're obviously seeing bans of certain chemicals, um, but we also saw the successful neonic derogation for sugar beet this spring. So yeah, I'm just interested to know where you think this pesticide regulation is heading, broadly speaking? Uh, I think uh, in the present day, um, getting a new insecticide registered is really difficult because the the uh, bar has been risen and the res- restrictions on usage are even more than they ever used to be. Um, but I, I find myself in the indigenous in position of having lived through a period when insecticide use was very high and the type of products that were used were quite dangerous. Um, I'm thinking here about OPs back in the 60s and 70s, last century, uh, carbamates, etc. And those have all been um, gradually replaced over the years with safer products because the uh, testing that's done on them is much more stringent than it used to be. Um, but the insecticide use in the UK is, is largely dominated by pyrethroids. Um, and that's still, that's been like that for 20 or 30 years and still is for the moment. Um, I think it's driven a little bit or a lot by the price of pyrethroids compared to uh, newer insecticides, which are a lot more expensive. Um, and because of that, I think the um, 
the care of use has been less than it could have been had they been more expensive and therefore other decisions would have needed to be made about their economic value. The newer insecticides that are coming through are more expensive and growers are obliged therefore to use them more carefully. Uh, I think that's the current situation with the uh, insecticides that are around. Uh, with regard to the neonicotinoids, uh, I've, I was at the beginning uh, of their uh, existence in UK agriculture and I'm still here at the end of, of their, or at least at the end of the era that the um, three neonicotinoids that were used as seed treatments were used. I always thought they were very good insecticides. Uh, uh, I was um, amazed at some of the performance of them and I felt that they were safer in their usage because of the way they were being used, not as overall sprays but as seed treatments um, in much more um, targeted applications. So I don't see the uh, um, approval of Cyamethoxam uh, in the cruiser treated seed in Shudabid as a major problem. Uh, I've never thought they were a problem in Shudabid anyway. Um, certainly not for bees, and I don't think for many other things either, for that matter. Um, although there isn't much evidence to suggest either way whether they are dangerous to non targets or not. Um, which is not what you could say about some of the sprays that are applied. Um, I think there's a place for them. I think they need to be used carefully. I think they need to be used uh, in accordance with integrated pest management principles. Uh, I can't see them disappearing quickly at the moment, and I may address that question later on. And do you think we're likely to stay kind of in line with the EU and their um, pesticide policy going forward? I think so, because uh, the main companies that are selling insecticides around the planet are based a lot in Europe. Uh, the likes of Bayer, ASEF, um, Syngenta, based in Switzerland, I suppose, or the now Chinese one. But Generally speaking, um, the major markets for these insecticides are in Europe, and I think the British uh, system will follow along with that. There may be the odd exception. Um, I don't think there will be much in insecticides, but there may be the odd exception with other things like herbicides or fungicides. But uh, by and large, I think we'll stick with Europe for the moment. Yeah, okay. And then moving on to um, the actual efficacy of the products that are used now, um, we know that some chemicals aren't working so well anymore. We've got quite widespread resistance um, within a number of pest species to things like pyrethroids. So what's the picture looking like there and are we still able to protect crops this way? Uh, the resistance situation is getting worse. And it's because of overuse over the years, particularly with pyrethroids. And again, I feel that that's been driven by their cheap price because they tended to be used as insurance sprays 
rather than as necessary sprays just because they were so cheap to put on. You know, when winter price is as low as a pound a hectare, pound an acre, sorry, uh, farmers are risk averse, so are the agronomists who advise them. So it's not surprising that um, the, the um, decision to add a little bit in to a mix of another cocktail of chemicals is made quite often, has been made quite often in the past. So inevitably you get selection for resistance when they're overused like that. As I say, with regard to the more recent insecticides, that's less likely to happen in the future because they're more expensive and therefore they will be used more responsibly. Um, the resistance situation is, uh, as I said, mostly to pyrethroids. I'm not aware of that many resistance issues with the more recent products. Um, so uh, I suppose pyrethroids will fall off the shelf just because they don't work anymore. And growers know that and they'll go for something better that does work. And we've got this um, growing focus now on, you know, beneficial species that can help us control pests biologically. Um, are they able to build up some kind of tolerance to this chemistry as well? Oh, that's a good question. And one which I, I, I asked myself, uh, there is a project being done in Europe, um, which involves Rothamsted research uh, at the moment. And they are looking into the evolution of insecticide-resistant natural enemies. I suppose if you think about it, if if, um, if pests are evolving resistance to these pesticides, why shouldn't natural enemies do the same? Um, the, one of the reasons why it might not happen so quickly is that beneficials tend to have sexual life cycles, and sexual life cycles take longer to evolve resistance ish, um, um, traits. Whereas things like aphids are asexual and if uh, a resistant aphid survives a spray application, then all of its offspring are likely to do the same. So the, and with aphids particularly, selection for resistance is quite fast. But yes, you do expect beneficials to evolve resistance as well. Um, uh, but there's no evidence yet that that's happened. Uh, it, it is being looked at. Um, with regard to beneficials, though, uh, they've always been there, um, just not been regarded as terribly important in the past. And yet, 50 years ago, when I started my career in entomology, that's exactly what we were trying to do, is, is utilise the... Uh, the benefits that natural enemies can provide um, uh, and it's quite interesting that we're now swinging back to that it's kind of like a big circle yeah reinvention of wheels etc yeah there seems to be uh, quite a lot of that at the moment in uh, agriculture in terms of all the different things that people are trying again uh, beneficials are useful for certain um, situations um, they're useful, for example, in controlling aphids that cause direct filly damage. But they're not so useful when it comes to doing 
things like controlling virus spread. And one of the reasons for that is that they, um, they exert an in influence on pest populations after the pests have arrived, and they're always on the drag a little bit before they achieve um, a balance whereby pest damage is reduced by the presence of the beneficials. When it comes to virus spread, that virus spread tends to occur before the pest is controlled by the natural enemies. I'm thinking here particularly of virus yellows in sugar beet and BYDV in cereals. You tend to get virus spread in those crops before natural enemies can exert economic control. Yeah, I guess that's that's the real issue when you're relying on biology. You can't, you know, you don't know when they're going to turn up or if the pest will get to the crop before them, which often seems to be the case. Yes. Uh, I do have a, an anecdote about uh, beneficials in cereals um, because uh, in my uh, business where I do field trials testing products against pests or disease or weeds, um, uh, finding sites with sufficient aphids to do an appropriate test was quite difficult uh, during the era of um, uh, environmental schemes um, where farmers were using those schemes to grow flowering margins, for example. It was always quite difficult to find a cereal crop, wheat, for example, that had sufficient aphids in it for me to do a trial. Uh, <laughs> um, I tended to avoid small farms with small fuels in that, in that <laughs> respect and look for huge fields where flowering margins were quite far away and therefore the pests did have a chance of uh, getting to a, a situation where I could actually test something. Um, but that... that uh, principle um, is, is disappearing again because the environmental schemes are being wound down and new ones are being replacing them, details of which are not always clear. Um, but it's certainly true that if you provide a, in an agricultural landscape a diversity of habitat, then the chances of getting good control of pests with natural enemies is increased immensely. But the huge fields that are, are sometimes present in some parts of the country tend to mitigate against that. You mentioned flowering margins there. For those that it's potentially not feasible to have flowering margins um, within their field, is there anything you know more kind of novel that they can do that might help to boost those beneficial insect populations? Uh, well, the, the use of beetle banks... Um, or flowering strips through the middle of fields would enhance the spread of natural enemies within a crop. Um, difficult to manage that when you've got giant sprayers these days um, because you don't want the giant sprayers to be spraying your flowering strips with herbicides, for example, uh, or fungicides or indeed insecticides. You want them to be providing the natural enemies that will move into the crops. Um, another aspect of that is that the major cultivations that used to be 
uh, practiced across the board, um, they, they always have an adverse effect on natural enemies that uh, live in the, in the soil, for example. I'm thinking here in terms of pyramid beetles, stifflinid beetles and, and ground-dwelling spiders. Uh, they don't like the plough. And back in the 60s, for example, in the last century, ploughing was very common and pest attacks were also very common. And maybe the two were linked. The use of heavy cultivations was not helping. Yeah, that was going to be my next question, actually. Do we know much about, you know, things like the impact of cultivations? Because we're obviously seeing a lot more people now reducing their cultivations or, you know, turning to direct drilling. So that might be a way to boost those populations as well. Uh, I think indeed they are. Um, there's quite a lot of work. It's long-standing work that goes back 20 or 30 years. I, I remember doing uh, soil sampling, um, pitfall trapping, etc. back in the 70s and 80s down in Sussex as part of a big project called the North Bank Project. And it was pretty obvious that cultivations, deep cultivations particularly, were adversely affecting everything that was in the soil. Um, earthworms, uh, all sorts of small invertebrates, but also in particular ground-dwelling um, uh, predators, carabid beetles, etc. And the less of that that you do, the more of these things existed, and they did provide some control of what pests did occur in the crops down there at the time. Um, there is a downside to uh, reduced tillage, um, direct drilling, etc. It means you're more at risk of uh, weed problems um, and slug problems. Uh, and back in the day, uh, that was counteracted by the use of slug pellets that were actually quite detrimental to wildlife generally. I'm thinking in terms of methylgarb here. Um, not so much of metaldehyde, but both of those have now disappeared, have been withdrawn, and um, I think slugs are, are now, now one of the major pests <laughs> because there's not much left to control them. Yeah. And in terms of the weed control situations, um, uh, inevitably when you've got more weed problems caused by less cultivations, you get more herbicides applied, and that has a knock-on effect on uh, on the diversity of plants with, within and around fields. So there's always something, you know, you take one step forward and then another one back, and trying to achieve the balance is, is the tricky bit. Yeah, and we're, we're talking about um, beneficial insects here, it's quite a broad term, but are there any, you know, in particular that you really like to see in a field? Uh, well, uh, I'm an ephidologist um, within the entomology discipline, so I've always been um, uh, aware of the uh, effects of ladybirds, uh, lacewings, hoverfly larvae on aphid pests. All of those pests are very good at controlling aphids once they get attracted to them um, and keeping them, you know, 
but trying to cultivate them in the environment is, is a good thing. Um, parasitoids also uh, are good for aphid control, but they're also good for control of other things like weevils and um, other various beetle pests that occur, which the likes of ladybirds and lacewings and hoverflies don't control so much. Uh, so parasitoids, I think, are quite an important group of wasps within the environment. Um, the, the, the way to enhance their numbers is to have uh, alternative places for them to breed uh, when there's no crop in the ground and therefore no pests to be feeding on. So uh, diversity of habitat is the important part of all of this. Yeah. And having to uh, have a bit of a messier farm as well, I've been told, is very good. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, farm managers are always interested in simplicity of operation, keep the costs down, etc. So if you make a farm landscape more difficult to manage, that increases the costs. And of course, that's always um, something that they consider the bottom line is important. If you don't make a profit, um, then what's the point of farming sort of, sort of thing. But I think there's a new generation of farmers coming through who've got a different approach, different, they've been trained a different way, they're looking at things a different way. On to the topic of the weather. Um, we're obviously seeing the climate, you know, changing. Um, yes. So, what could we perhaps, you know, see less of certain pests or even newer pests emerging on the back of this climate change? Um, I know BBRO found was it tortoise beetle in in a, in a crop um, last summer, um, which they were quite surprised by. So, could it be that we might see a new pest that we have to worry about? Well, that crop that they found the tortoise beetles in was uh, which I had a field trial. Oh, really? In, in the Breckland, yeah. And uh, the agronomist who found it uh, alerted me to it as well. And I went and looked, and it's quite a quite interesting pest. Is for me, it was quite exciting to have <laughs> a, Medi a Mediterranean pest in the UK. Uh, it's Central Europe and Southern Europe that this the tortoise beetles. Uh, normally inhabit. So I presume it's because of global warming that we've now got it in this country. It'd be interesting to see if it reappears this year because I've had a relatively mild winter. So I'll be keeping an eye on that part of the Breckland uh, to see if it reappears. But yes, so the, the milder the climate uh, that we have, the, the more likely do we are to have uh, pests from uh, Central and Southern Europe increasing their range in the UK um, and uh, that, that also means therefore that the sort of pests that we get down here in East Anglia will move up to Scotland and, and they'll start complaining about some of the problems <laughs> that we have uh, as the weather in, improves uh, or it, it, as the temperatures increase. Um, I'm not sure there will be many pests disappear uh, that's um, a shame. Yes, uh, um, but um, the the other 
aspect of that is that the ones that we do have will become more frequent in their um, best activities. I'm thinking here in terms specifically of overwintering aphids, uh, such as Mysospersky, the peach potato aphid, uh, or uh, one of the cereal aphid species that um, uh, survives, will survive the winter more often and in higher numbers than before when really cold temperatures used to decimate the populations in the winter. That's one of the reasons why, for example, two years ago, we had an epidemic of Irish yellows and sugarweed. It was a mild winter. The aphids that were uh, the vectors of the virus um, migrated early, about a month earlier than normal, uh, and colonized very young sugarweed crops at the beginning of the season, um, and more or less uh, spread the virus with, without, with impunity. Not helped in, in the situation by the ban on neonicotinoids at the time. That was the second year of the ban, um, and it just coincided with a period of really warm weather during the winter. I do wonder if we're going to have the same situation again, but of course this year neonicotinoids were approved, or one was approved, and um, I gather it's going to be, or it has already been used in, in about 75% of the sugar beet, so that will stop the virus from causing as, as much damage as it did two years ago. Uh, except in the 25% of fields that aren't going to be treated. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how that pans out in terms of green and yellow crops within the landscape. Yeah, definitely. And I guess the challenge is with these loss of actives and things, a bit like we've seen with flea beetle, you know, we've lost the chemicals available. We're kind of getting to a place now where some people can at least grow a crop of oilseed rape using some of the cultural control mechanisms that we've um, developed or discovered. Um, but that's taken a few years and has obviously had a massive impact on the area of the crop now grown here. It's had a huge effect. The, the, the situation with cabbage stem flea beetles and rape is, is, is un, it's a, still an unsolved problem. Despite all the, um, well, I'm, I'm not sure that there are proven advances yet in cultural control, because I've been monitoring cover crops, for example, um, and various other uh, initiatives that have been taken to reduce flea beetles, and I haven't actually noticed any difference. Uh, from a scientific point of view, it's mostly anecdotal stories that you hear, but uh, when you actually measure what's going on and don't see any differences. You wonder what all the fuss is about. Uh, it's certainly true that flea beetles have caused a massive reduction in the area of oilseed rape grown in the UK by about 62% since the peak in 2012, when over 720,000 hectares were grown. We are now down to a third of that. And a lot of that, if not most of it is due to the inability to control cabbage stem flea beetles with insecticides. 
since the banning of the new nicotinoid seed treatments that did control them before that. The pyrethroids are ineffectual now because of widespread resistance and none of the um, up and coming or newer active ingredients that are coming through the system um, have been able to control this best. I've tested a lot of them and I haven't seen anything that does the job yet. And that includes some of the biological control methods which uh, are being touted as possible solutions but in my experience nothing, nothing's working so far. Um, if the flea beetle situation is, if, if people are perceiving it to be a reducing problem, it's probably more because of the reduced area of rate grown within a locality so that there's, the, the beetles have less crops to go at um, and their breeding opportunities are reduced as a result. And maybe that was always a solution. We grew too much oilseed rate before and now we're back in or approaching a balance where we can tolerate a pest like the Capistan flea beetle. Yeah. I'm not all that convinced about that, but it, it is a question back of my mind. Was, was the situation made worse by having too much rate in the landscape? Yeah. But the price of rape is now twice what it was a year ago. And that's going to get worse with this war in Ukraine. So the temptation to grow more rape again is going to be up there along with everything else. And I think we might get back to the situation that we had in 2013 when devastating effects on oilseed rape, lots of crops lost and re-drilled and lost again. Mm. Just because the price of rape is so high People are tempted to chance their arm again. Yeah, yeah, I can't blame them. And and finally, um, for this season, looking ahead a bit, how is pest yes. pressure looking? I mean, we obviously mentioned earlier that the Rothamsted trigger was met, which suggests that aphid pressure is obviously up this season on last season. Um, so what are your thoughts on how things are looking? Well, if I use sugar beet as an example uh, that would also apply to other crops that are uh, at risk from the same species of aphid, Mysospersicae, the forecast for virus yellows in sugar beet is the second highest that I've experienced since I was working on that crop back in the day at Brim's Barn. Um, it hasn't been as high since the 1970s. So, mm -hmm. uh, the uh, and the reason for that is we've had a relatively mild winter. The aphids are likely to have survived quite well on their overwintering sites. They will be flying into uh, sugar beet and other um, host crops like potatoes, like cabbage, like brassicas of any type uh, earlier than last year. Maybe not quite as early as 2020. But nevertheless, early, I think the forecast is for first aphid is the 19th of April, which is next week. Um, and uh, if we have uh, another sort of nice warm spring, they'll breed up very well and spread diseases as well as increasing in number. 
Uh, I think other overwintering species will do the same, uh, cereal aphids, for example. Uh, and I've already seen for myself the impact of the relatively mild winter on the presence of pea and bean weevils in winter beans, which are causing damage, but generally not economic damage. Um, but um, newly emerging peas and beans are already being uh, attacked by this species of weevil. So yes, I think uh, we're in for uh, an entomologically active summer. Uh, and if it, if it does stop raining and it does warm up a bit, we'll see the, we'll see the, the effects of that, I'm sure. When I was working on cereal aphids 45 years ago, God, uh, I, I always thought that there was less aphid problems the following summer than after a cold winter. And one of the reasons for that if, if they are destroyed by insecticides applied in the autumn, is that the natural enemies also survive the winter if it's mild on the populations of aphids that survive through the winter. But if you kill those populations off, the likes of parasitoids, etc., cetera, mm. they, they are also killed off. Um, and therefore any new migrations that take place in the spring have got a head start on the I've heard a few comments um, this season that because aphid pressure last season was much lower, it might be that there's a lot less virus around this year, even though aphid populations are expected to be higher. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. And I would have agreed with that, but I would just cast your mind back to the beginning of 2020. The year before 2020 was the first year of post ban non neonicotinoid use in sugar beet. And the industry got away with it a little bit because the the winter weather in the 2019, sorry, 2018-19 winter was not mild. It wasn't severe, it was kind of like in the middle. So the overwintering survival of the aphids was not high. It was more, say, and, and the virus incidence in 2019 was relatively low as a consequence. So, in effect, what we are seeing is a repeat of that situation going into, in, in 2019, in 2020, a repeat of the 2019 situation going into a winter, and then we get a mild winter, and all hell lets loose. Yeah. So I don't know if the low virus levels last year are more important than the mild winter that will increase the, the vectors. If we get a, a, a warm spring similar to what we had in 2020, I think we'll see major movements of aphids coming into crops. As I said, for 75% of the, of the sugar beet growers won't mind about that because they've got something in place that will control them. The 25% who haven't must must be watching carefully at the, the aphid bulletins that are coming out. Yeah, absolutely. Just have to watch this space, won't we? Thank you very much, Alan. It's been really good to chat. Thank you.
Farming is undergoing a huge change and no one's really sure what the future holds other than we need to build resilience and profitability into our farming practices. Earning up to £800 a hectare from your less productive land is an option with Miscanthus. The contracts are up to 15 years and fixed price, offering that extra security and one less unknown. You can have a crop that improves soil and water health whilst providing habitat and shelter for animals, increasing your organic matter and actually assisting food production by allowing you to concentrate on the more productive land. The biomass that grows every year is used to produce carbon neutral electricity, while the incredible rhizome network underground is carbon negative, drawing on average 2.35 tonnes of CO2 per hectare per year. You can now plant 30 hectares for roughly £1,600 in year one, thanks to our amazing partners at Oxbury, the Agricultural Bank. Start growing innovation. Visit terravesta.com. Moving on to our next guest today, it's time to hear the experience of Cambridgeshire farmer and chair of the Nature Friendly Farming Network, Martin Lines, who has eliminated insecticide use on his farm. And I'm looking forward to hearing how he's done that. Martin, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Um, for those of our listeners that don't know, would you mind just starting um, by giving us a bit of background on you and your farm? Yeah, so I, I farm in Cambridgeshire, uh, predominantly arable-based system, uh, combinable crops. Um, so we're 165 hectares at home, uh, and we've also been engaged with delivering stewardship or habitats for the last sort of 20 odd years. Um, so I deliver crop production alongside of uh, targeted habitat delivery. And you decided um, that you wanted to eliminate insecticide use on your farm. Um, when did you kind of decide that and, you know, what made you want to do that? Uh, I think the decision came after I stopped using it um, rather than an active decision. Um, so, so we've been in stewardship for 20 odd years. The scheme we're in now, we deliver a lot of holistically enhanced flower-rich areas on the edge of fields and field corners. And what I found was they're full of biodiversity, crawlies and stuff I didn't really understand. Uh, they're just little things. Um, and I was conscious that they may be a pest, but they didn't seem to be causing many problems. Um, uh, we had a crop of winter beans growing one season. My agronomist, I'm not an organic farmer, my agronomist said, you've got black bean aphids on there, they're destroying the crop. Um, father was about at the time, said, uh, yep, we've got to spray them some insecticides. Um, we regularly use, at that time, insecticides. So he gave me the recommendation, but I couldn't actually go and spray them because the following day it was wet and windy. And it was wet and windy for about two weeks. So I had my father on the case saying, that's it, you've lost your crop. You know, those aphids are going to destroy your beans. Uh, you should have been out there before because there was a couple of small windows. I could have possibly done it. So instead of mixing up the chemical, I went out and had a look at the beans, thinking, well, that's it, I've lost my crop. Um, but what I found was there's hardly any aphids left, but it was full of lace wings, ladybirds, creepy crawlies eating the aphids. So I thought, oh, wow, this is uh, interesting. So I do I need to do anything? So I chose not to do anything. Um, my father gave me a bit of a hard time saying, you know, it's terrible. But actually, by not doing it, we actually, I think, we ended up with a better yield because we hadn't killed all the beneficiaries as well as the aphids. 
And then, so the following year, we had a crop again, because we were regularly growing beans, with a similar problem. And I actively chose then not to do something on part of the field, or the majority of the field, just to see what happened. And yes, we saw some aphids, and yes, the numbers built up. But actually, because we've got the habitats nearby, the good, good things came in at them. And it was from that point, it was like, well, why are we using insecticides? And I actively chose to remove them completely out of the system. But then recognising we deliver, trying to deliver biodiversity in the fields or around them, what are, what are we delivering? What do I need to deliver to deliver the habitat for the good species I want on the farm to eat the bad species? So it's been quite a journey. And we've actually got to the point now I'm voluntarily putting habitat strips in the middle of my fields. So I've got more creepy crawlies and stuff eating my slugs and eating my pests within field structure as well as around the outside. Okay, so how, how does that look in practice when you're putting it through the field? So we've got to the point now I've squared as much as my, my, many as my fields up as possible. My biggest machine is my sprayer. We operate on a 30 metre spray boom. So with any awkward corners, we're taken out and we choose different habitats to deliver depending on what field we're in and what, what, how much money I'm going to get for the different things. And then every fourth tram line now, we're putting a six metre strip in. So we're on, on GPS, so the tram lines stay where they are. So we're actually putting in uh, a six metre strip. Lots of people are using the assist margins, which is a, a trial that's been going on, demonstrating that most creepy crawlies move about 50 metres, the beneficials. So about the average 100 metres, you'll get the best delivery. On a 30 metre, because I'm voluntarily doing it, I've chosen to do 120 because that means four tram lines, so I'll go up and down twice, which makes my field even. On the assist margins, they cut and remove all the habitat, all the flowers at the end of the season, or mulch them. And my thinking was, uh, I'm working on another farm doing the trial, there's no place for the creepy crawlies to live over winter. Mm. So on our farm, we put these six-metre margins in every 120 metres, and they've actually got one metre of tuscany grass either side and four metres of flowers down the centre. So the tuscany grass stays there all year round and, and you know, we don't have to manage that. And then we manage the flower bit by cutting and removing at the end of the season. So we have these corridors going across all of our fields now and each year I'm adding more and more in. So every 120 metres we put a biodiversity strip in the middle and we're seeing really positive out outcomes from that habitat in the landscape on healthier crops less pests less slugs because the beetles are living in amongst the middle of the fields not just around the outsides and have you had any really bad pest years where you thought oh this is gonna challenge the system a bit we, we obviously have years where we will see slug issues mm-hmm. um and we're direct drilling we don't now don't do any cultivation either um we, I use a few slug pellets, usually where the oil seed rape is, but very rarely do I need them anywhere else. We will see slugs, and I will see the odd little patch get grazed, but actually we haven't had the pressure that we had years ago. I used to use pallet loads of slug pellets. We have a few bags come in now, and we've seen for the aphids, we've gone from a point of being scared of seeing when I see aphids and thinking I used to have to spray them, to a point that I want to see aphids because then I know there's a life cycle of the 
creeper crawlies and the you know these uh, the aphids, um, the ladybirds and the hoverflies and the stuff that eats them. And we have seen a couple of patches of BYDV damage, and, and but it's always only little patches. Mm. Um, so we don't use we, we literally don't use insecticides and haven't done for eight years now. Uh, don't use an insecticide treat uh, seed treatments, and I haven't seen anything where I think, ouch, I should have done something. But yeah, there's been little patches, but never enough to justify a treatment now. Yeah, and what I've, I have the confidence of the. The less I do, the, the less, it sounds really fluffy, but the ecosystem around them is becoming healthier mm. and we've got to find the natural balance. So we can't suddenly say, tomorrow I'm going to stop using insecticides. For me, it's been a progressive, okay, I don't, I want to move away. Or, I, I, you know, a lot of the insecticides we were using in the past were becoming inefficient and not really effective in what they're treating, but they also killed a lot of the beneficiaries. So it's about putting the steps in place to manage the boundaries of the fields and the habitat to deliver, sounds awful, a home for nature, you know, places for the good things to live so they're there on your landscape when you need them to munch away at the pests you have. Yeah, and it doesn't sound awful, it makes perfect sense. I, I, I just feel it makes me sound very much like a conservationist, and it's very <laughs> much conservation language, and I, I'm not a conservationist. Oh, People say I'm a, I'm a productive farmer mm. who nature gives me free gifts, production, you know, pollination, rainwater, healthiest soil, and creepy crawlies eat my pests. Um, but it just makes me look at things very differently now. And I have to understand a whole lot more stuff about biodiversity that when I went to college, uni, we were never talked about. We were yeah. talked about inputs and production. Now I'm trying to understand which flowers species do I need in the middle of the fields around the outside that host the best predatory insects? Because we're told what's good for, for biodiversity, but which of those bits of biodiversity do I want to actively encourage? So I'm now trying to engage with conservationists and flower specialists to learn that knowledge that I think we need, like I, I have knowledge of agrochemicals and pesticides I'd use, what are the other things that I could be delivering? And certainly at the moment, it's cut through countryside stewardship, but some of that will come through public money for public goods in Elms mm. and being rewarded for the public goods. And if I can get the right public goods in my landscape, I'm going to have a double win. I'm going to get funded for it and I'm going to see a production benefit from it. Yeah. So would your advice be to would be to build up that habitat first, build up your kind of beneficial populations and things like that, and then um, think about... De definitely. So I, so I look at it now, you know, if I look back, we had three or four years building a healthy landscape up by putting the habitats in, got them established. Don't overmanage ditch banks and grass margins. Let them be rough and tuskety over winter because that's where your predatory species will live. Um and then sort of say, well, actually, on that crop, what is the risk? And I, I have a bit of a competition with my agronomist nowadays. He has to spot the tram lines or the fields I haven't treated. If he can't walk a field when we're doing a treatment and spotted a difference, why we kept, what's the justification of doing it? So I would say to, to, you know, to your listeners, can you miss a tram line out? If you're really scared, just miss part of a tram line out. Can you see a difference? Um, to just build up your own confidence in how far 
how low you can go within your applications and, and sort of give something to try because from my experience it's absolutely amazing how much you can actually wind back with good management and reduce the pressure risk from from creepy crawlies and those aphids and the slugs but by managing the habitat and the landscape in a better way yeah and you mentioned um oilseed rape earlier that's when when i think of pests i think of flea beetle when i think of a crop pest have you um do you have problems with flea beetle and if so are you doing any other things to kind of mitigate it as well we have had problems with flea beetle but predominantly while the flea beetle have been here they are normally here when we have a high temperature period low moisture and the crop is stressed and the beetles have a free reign of munching like anything because the crop stopped growing. Um, and also, we've done some slug traps in that. We have a, you know, we can have an underlying issue of snails or slugs that we blame on flea beetle, or have in the past blamed on flea beetle, where we had an underlying um, slug problem. So we are doing all various different things, um, drilling a bit earlier. Uh, I've drilled and understone with cover crops and companions. Uh, on one farm, we're putting strips in of uh, and it's turnip radish or something um, to make it as a um, a strip that they go and eat at, but they don't eat the rape. So beside of those margins, there's a little bit of flea beetle damage, but a couple of meters away, there's nothing. But within the strips, there's lots, and it's about how can we use companion crops, delayed drilling, early drilling. And that multiple approach. So we've had some this year. We've got some of our best rape we've had for years by just slightly changing our approach. But I also admit we've got one field that uh, we drilled early September. Uh, it was really dry, um, and it didn't succeed. But because I put a companion crop in with it, it became a cover crop. The sheep have just finished eating it, and spring beans are going in there now. So the risk was quite low. For, for you know, giving oilseed rape a, a chance of growing. Yeah. And have you had to make any other changes to your rotation? Like many, we've got growing rape too often. Um, yeah. And we are widening right out to you know, every seven or eight years. Um, we do a lot more spring cropping now. Um, what we have found is rape after winter barley gets away a lot better than after rape, after, after winter wheat. And then so also we need to just think about how we put a herbicide somewhere in that previous 12 months program that may have a residual effect. Mm. So we use it, we're growing less oilseed rape, but giving it the best possible chance when it does when it, when we do plant it. And my next guest um, is going to talk a bit about um, some work that she's doing on um, bioinsecticides in oilseed rape. Um, I just wondered kind of what your view on these kind of products is. Would you be interested in it or are you just kind of, you know, focusing on letting nature do its job for you? I'm always interested in what's coming, uh, but I also look at the science around it and how beneficial or what's the uh, collateral damage of using that product. So at the moment, I'm in a, a confident place that I don't need insecticides um but if there was something uh that came that added additional benefits as long as it didn't have any collateral damage to the biodiversity mm. i may look at doing it but if it if i think it did why do i why would i want to use it 
when I'm finding that I don't need to and I'm using nature as a more productive tool, that actually comes for free. Yeah. I not have to sp- spend anything on a treatment, a C treatment or a, another application. And for me going forward, I'm really trying to focus on how little can we spend on some of these crops to mitigate the risk. And I think the market will become more volatile. Uh, as we've seen just lately, the prices have gone skyrocketing, skyrocketing for so are my input costs. Mm. So we need to just sort of uh, brace ourselves. But if there's something came along, you're certainly keen to look at it, and I may even put a, a small trial area in and just evaluate it on my own farm. Yeah. Okay. That's brilliant. Thank you. That's all right. And now for my final guest, Claire Haraw is a PhD student at Harper Adams University. There's yet to be another chemical solution to cabbage stem flea beetle available. So Claire is studying how effective different biocontrols on the market are in controlling the pest. Hi, Claire. Great to have you. Um, You're looking at quite a wide range of products, aren't you? So would you mind just telling us um, which products these are and how they specifically target the flea beetle? Yeah, uh... First, I'm looking at uh, antimopathogens, so they include antimopathogenic nematodes, fungi, and bacteria. So um, these are living organisms, so they don't work like other pesticides. Um, so the nematodes um, are targeting the beetles by um, entering the beetle itself. Then uh, they release bacteria that will uh, kill the beetles, and then the nematodes will multiply in the cadaver, and then exit and search for new host. So it is in a way uh can't sustain itself in a way. Uh then we have fungi, uh so we spray the spores directly on the beetles and then the fungi will grow on uh, um the insect, uh, penetrate the body and then sporulate and then again the spore uh will disperse and contaminate all the hosts. Then bacteria, it's a bit different. Um, it's ingested, uh, it needs to be ingested uh, through the food. So I've been uh, contaminating the food, then giving uh, oxy leaves to the beetles, contaminated oxy leaves, and the beetles have been eating it. And that's how uh, they get infected by the bacteria that will uh, release a crystal that uh, is insecticidal. Then, uh, Apart from antimopathogens, I'm also looking at uh, what we call physically acting products, and in particular, uh, fatty acids, which are insecticidal molecules. Uh, the one I'm looking at at the moment is called Tupa. Um, it's uh, developed by Bayer, and um, it's derived from, uh, from olive oil, so it's completely natural, which is uh, one of the, the main advantages of biopesticides. And um, same as um, antimicrobials, sprayed on the beetle, and then um, it penetrates the body of the insect and then kills it. Um, that's pretty much it. I'm also comparing this biopesticides with um, the parasitoid insecticides that are authorized against cabbage for beetle on mossy grape. Okay. Um, to, to try and compare. Uh, both uh, products, see which one is more effective. And one of the goals of my PhD projects, it was also to try and optimize uh, the use of those parathroids, maybe by combining them with uh, biopesticides to see if it will mean 
uh, we can reduce the amount of forex stories that we use. Oh, so you, you're looking at a real wide range of um, products then? Yes. Have you done any field trials yet? I've done lab and also field trial. I've done a first field trial uh, in September, from September to November 2021. So it's quite recent. Um, so, yeah, I've taken um, products that I've tested in the lab and were um, effective. I've taken them to the field. Um, I've got some... Uh, results but um hey, there's a lot of things to improve because in the lab everything is controlled in terms of environmental uh, factors and in the field there are many things that i need to improve to make sure that the um, pesticides are in the best conditions to be effective especially um, antipathogens since they are living organisms so they are very sensitive to uv radiation temperature humidity um, so there are some uh, aspects that I need to adapt for this, um, especially um, trying to spray maybe in the evening so that uh, they're not affected by UV radiations. I also might uh, be able to uh, adapt the formulation by adding some adjuvants. I'm tr- um, at the moment, I'm um, trying to see if there are some adjuvants I could use, especially with nematodes. Um, I found a few and I'm currently testing them. Uh, on just positive oxygen repeats to see um, if it helps the limited to stay a bit longer or to stay on the leaf a bit easier. I can imagine with all of these bioproducts, they're a lot more sensitive to field conditions than, you know, perhaps chemical insecticides that we're used to, which are already quite sensitive anyway. Yeah. And from from the work that you've done... Um, are there any of these that you think could be, you know, really quite a, a good solution in the field? Um, I think they could, not maybe not by themselves, because I believe in uh, the power of integrated pest management. Um, I think it will need to be part of a, an IPM program for sure. There's a lot of pro- other projects on Cabeza Tributal, looking at parasitoids, crop management, um, varieties. Um, yeah, I think it will need to be part of a bigger scheme of methods. But I think um, some of these projects, yeah, they could actually be uh, effective in the field. What kind of um, levels of control have you managed to achieve using some of these bioproducts? Yeah. Oh, in the lab, uh, FIPA was particularly effective. Within 24 hours, I had uh, more than 80% of beetles dead with uh, FIPA applied at field rate, so it was quite nice, it was very fast. Um, Inumators as well were effective, I tried four different species and two of them were pretty effective with also more than 70% mortality after a couple of days. Uh, I didn't have the similar results in the field, but like I said, I need to improve the methods. Uh, I think the field season I did last year was not really reflective of what they actually could do if um, formulation was better and time of application were adapted. Yeah, okay. So yeah, I'm planning to redo a field uh, a field trial this autumn, so September 2022, before I finish my PhD. And um, with things like nematodes, because we kind of, when we use... Um, a chemical, we obviously think about the impact on the wider environment by using it. Things like um, releasing nematodes, would that potentially, you know, upset the ecosystem? 
uh, it shouldn't impact the environment much. Uh, it's all the species that are that can be found in the soil anyway. It's not invasive species. It's not introduced in the country, um, and they usually uh, don't live long enough to really settle somewhere. It's quite short. Um, the time they actually stay in the field is relatively short, so it shouldn't impact uh, the environment. And um, of course, there's also the problem of non-target organisms. Um, so for this, it's mostly trying to find the best uh, time of application to target the beetles when they're active and when uh, the environment is fine for the herbicide and also when uh, non-target organisms are not active. So it's all a balance to find. And in terms of application, how are most of these products applied? Would it be the same as sprayer? Yeah, it's an abstract. I've been using an abstract sprayer. Uh, it's usually, it's all uh, products that uh, can be applied with normal uh, applic- applicators uh, for farmers. So that makes it quite easy. Yeah, oh, that's good. The economics, because I know, um, you know, products like flipper then they might be really good in like higher value crops but they might be quite expensive to use in a crop like oilseed rape um are you looking at the economics of these products as well yeah uh i'm planning before i finish to look at the you know, cost and benefits of the bogus slides because yeah of course it's, uh if it works but can't be implemented um farmers routine then it's not useful so yeah i definitely going to look at this so you kind of see these um, biologicals as like an integrated approach rather than a sole solution. And, you know, how we might like how we tackle black grass, we use lots of small marginal gains to get a good overall result. It might be like that. Yeah, I believe that it needs to be implemented uh, with other methods, um, especially because uh, been reading the uh, farming press and depending on where uh, the, the farmer is interviewed, where it comes from and how the weather is and how the soil is, they all have different ways to deal with cabbage and beetle. So I don't think a single solution is going to fit everyone. I think it's going to be a set of different methods and then you pick what what works best for you. Yeah. yeah, I guess we don't want to be in the scenario again when we're just relying on a single product as a solution yeah. anyway. Thanks very much, Claire. It's been excellent to chat and to hear more about all the work that you're doing. That's all we've got time for for today, but I hope you've enjoyed this three-part series delving a bit deeper into the future of chemistry in crop production. Our next episode, which airs in May, is going to be recorded in conjunction with the British Farming Awards. This year's entries opened in March and will close in June, so if you've got anyone you want to nominate, now is the time. In the next episode, I'll be having a panel discussion with three of our previous Arable Innovator winners, including Jake Freestone, and you will be able to submit your own questions to ask them. So head over to britishfarmingawards.co.uk if you've got any burning questions for them, and I will try and get them answered for you. Thanks very much for listening and see you next time.